When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 7 and 8, from Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And now, chapter 7, Merlin's Tower. Inasmuch as I was now the second personage in the kingdom, as far as political power and authority were concerned, much was made of me. My raiment was of silks and velvets and cloth of gold, and by consequence was very showy, also uncomfortable, but habit would soon reconcile me to my clothes. I was aware of that. I was given the choicest suite of apartments in the castle after the king's. They were aglow with loud-colored silken hangings, but the stone floors had nothing but rushes on them for a carpet, and they were misfit rushes at that, being not at all of one breed. As for conveniences, properly speaking, there weren't any. I mean, little conveniences." It is the little conveniences that make the real comfort of life. The big oaken chairs, graced with rude carvings, were well enough, but that was the stopping place. There was no soap, no matches, no looking-glass, except a metal one, about as powerful as a pail of water. And not a chromo. I had been used to chromos for years, and I saw now that without my suspecting it, a passion for art had got worked into the fabric of my being, and was become a part of me. It made me homesick to look around over this proud and gaudy but heartless barrenness and remember that in our house in East Hartford, all unpretending as it was, you couldn't go into a room, but you would find an insurance chromo, or at least a three-color God bless our home over the door. And in the parlor we had nine. But here, even in my grand room of state, there wasn't anything in the nature of a picture except a thing the size of a bed quilt, which was either woven or knitted. It had darned places in it, and nothing in it was the right color or right shape, and as for proportions, even Raphael himself couldn't have botched them more formidably, after all his practice on those nightmares they call his celebrated Hampton Court cartoons. Raphael was a bird. We had several of his chromos. One was his miraculous drought of fishes, where he puts in a miracle of his own, puts three men into a canoe which wouldn't have held a dog without upsetting. I always admired to study R's art. It was so fresh and unconventional. There wasn't even a bell or speaking tube in the castle. I had a great many servants, and those that were on duty lolled in the anteroom, and when I wanted one of them I had to go and call for him. There was no gas, there were no candles. A bronze dish half full of boarding-house butter with a blazing rag floating in it was the thing that produced what was regarded as light. A lot of these hung along the walls and modified the dark, just toned it down enough to make it dismal. If you went out at night, your servants carried torches. There were no books, pens, paper, or ink, and no glass in the openings they believed to be windows. 
It is a little thing, glass is, until it's absent. Then it becomes a big thing. But perhaps the worst of it all was that there wasn't any sugar, coffee, tea, or tobacco. I saw that I was just another Robinson Crusoe cast away on an uninhabited island, with no society but some more or less tame animals, and if I wanted to make life bearable, I must do as he did, invent, contrive, create, reorganize things, set brain and hand to work, and keep them busy. Well, all that was in my line. One thing troubled me along at first, the immense interest which people took in me. Apparently the whole nation wanted to look at me. It soon transpired that the eclipse had scared the British world almost to death, that while it lasted the whole country, from one end to the other, was in a pitiable state of panic, and the churches, hermitages, and monkeries overflowed with praying and weeping poor creatures who thought the end of the world was come. Then it followed the news that the producer of this awful event was a stranger, a mighty magician at Arthur's court, that he could have blown out the sun like a candle, and was just going to do it when his mercy was purchased, and he then dissolved his enchantments, and was now recognized and honored as the man who had by his unaided might saved the globe from destruction, and its peoples from extinction. Now, if you consider that everybody believed that, and not only believed it, but never dreamed of doubting it, you will easily understand that there was not a person in all Britain that would not have walked fifty miles to get a sight of me. Of course, I was all the talk. All other subjects were dropped. Even the king became suddenly a person of minor interest and notoriety. Within twenty-four hours the delegations began to arrive, and from that time onward for a fortnight they kept coming. The village was crowded, and all the countryside. I had to go out a dozen times a day and show myself to these reverent and awe-stricken multitudes. It came to be a great burden, as to time and trouble, but of course it was at the same time compensatingly agreeable to be so celebrated and such a center of homage. It turned Brer Merlin green with envy and spite, which was a great satisfaction to me. But there was one thing I couldn't understand. Nobody had asked for an autograph. I spoke to Clarence about it. By George, I had to explain to him what it was. Then he said nobody in the country could read or write but a few dozen priests. Land, think of that. There was another thing that troubled me a little. Those multitudes presently began to agitate for another miracle. That was only natural to be able to carry back to their far homes the boast that they had seen the man who could command the sun, riding in the heavens, and be obeyed, would make them great in the eyes of their neighbors, and envied by them all. But to be able to also say they had seen him work a miracle themselves, why, people would come a distance just to see them. The pressure got to be pretty strong. There was going to be an eclipse of the moon, and I knew the date and hour, but it was too far away, two years away. I would have given a good deal for license to hurry it up and use it now when there was a big market for it. It seemed a great pity to have it wasted so, and come lagging along at a time when a body wouldn't have any use for it, as like as not. If it had been booked for only a month away, I could have sold it short. But, as matters stood, I couldn't seem to cipher out any way to make it do me any good. So I gave up trying. Next, Clarence found that old Merlin was making himself busy on the sly among those people. He was spreading a report that I was a humbug, and that the reason I didn't accommodate the people with a miracle was because I couldn't. I saw that I must do something, and presently I thought out a plan. By my authority's executive, I threw Merlin into prison, the same cell I had occupied myself. 
Then I gave public notice by herald and trumpet that I should be busy with affairs of state for a fortnight. But about the end of that time I would take a moment's leisure and blow up Merlin's stone tower by fires from heaven. In the meantime, whosoever listened to evil reports about me, let him beware. Furthermore, I would perform but this one miracle at this time, and no more. If it failed to satisfy, and any murmured, I would turn the murmurers into horses, and make them useful. After that, the quiet ensued. I took Clarence into my confidence, to a certain degree, and we went to work privately. I told him that this was a sort of miracle that required a trifle of preparation, and that it would be sudden death to ever talk about these preparations to anybody. That made his mouth safe enough. Clandestinely, we made a few bushels of first-rate blasting powder, and I superintended my armorers while they constructed a lightning rod and some wires. This old stone tower was very massive, and rather ruinous, too, for it was Roman, and four hundred years old. Yes, and handsome, after a rude fashion, and clothed with ivy from base to summit, as with a shirt of scale mail. It stood on a lonely eminence, in good view from the castle, and about a half a mile away. Working by night, we stowed the powder in the tower, dug stones out, on the inside, and buried the powder in the walls themselves, which were fifteen feet thick at the base. We put in a peck at a time, in a dozen places. We could have blown up the Tower of London with these charges. When the thirteenth night was come, we put up our lightning rod, bedded it in one of the batches of powder, and ran wires from it to the other batches. Everybody had shunned that locality from the day of my proclamation, but on the morning of the fourteenth I thought best to warn the people, through the heralds, to keep clear away, a quarter of a mile away. Then added, by command, that at some time during the twenty-four hours I would consummate the miracle, but would first give a brief notice, by flags on the castle towers, if in the daytime, by torch-baskets in the same places, if at night. Thundershowers had been tolerably frequent of late, and I was not much afraid of a failure. Still, I shouldn't have cared for a delay of a day or two. I should have explained that I was busy with affairs of state yet, and the people must wait. Of course, we had a blazing sunny day, almost the first one without a cloud for three weeks. Things always happen that way, don't they? I kept secluded and watched the weather. Clarence dropped in from time to time and said the public excitement was growing and growing all the time, and the whole country filling up with human masses as far as one could see from the battlements. At last the wind sprang up and a cloud appeared, in the right quarter too, and just at nightfall. For a little while I watched that distant cloud spread and blacken, then I judged it was time for me to appear. I ordered the torch baskets to be lit, and Merlin liberated, and sent directly to me. A quarter of an hour later I ascended the parapet, and there I found the king and the court assembled, and gazing off in the darkness toward Merlin's tower. Already the darkness was so heavy that one could not see far. These people and the old turrets, being partly in deep shadow and partly in the red glow from the great torch-baskets overhead, made a good deal of a picture. Merlin arrived in a gloomy mood. I said, "'You wanted to burn me alive when I had not done you any harm, and latterly you've been trying to injure my professional reputation. Therefore I am going to call down fire and blow up your tower, but it is only fair to give you a chance.' "'Now, if you think you can break my enchantments "'and ward off the fires, step to the bat. "'It's your inning.' "'I can, prayer, sir, and I will. "'Doubt it not,' he said. "'He drew an imaginary circle on the stones of the roof, 
and burnt a pinch of powder in it, which sent up a small cloud of aromatic smoke, whereat everybody fell back and began to cross themselves and get uncomfortable. Then he began to mutter and make passes in the air with his hands. He worked himself up slowly and gradually into a sort of a frenzy, and got to thrashing around with his arms like the sails of a windmill. By this time the storm had about reached us. The gusts of wind were flaring the torches and making the shadows swash about. The first heavy drops of rain were falling. The world abroad was black as pitch. The lightning began to wink fitfully. Of course, my rod would be loading itself now. In fact, things were imminent. So I said, "'You've had time enough. I've given you every advantage, and not interfered. It is plain your magic is weak. It's only fair that I begin now.' I made about three passes in the air, and then there was an awful crash, and that old tower leaped into the sky in chunks, along with a vast volcanic fountain of fire that turned night to noonday, and showed a thousand acres of human beings groveling on the ground in a general collapse of consternation. Well, it rained mortar and masonry the rest of the week. This was the report, but probably the facts would have modified it. It was an effective miracle. The great bothersome temporary population vanished. There were a good many thousand tracks in the mud the next morning, but they were all outward bound. If I had advertised another miracle, I couldn't have raised an audience with a sheriff. Merlin's stock was flat. The king wanted to stop his wages. He even wanted to banish him. But I interfered. I said he would be useful to work the weather and attend to small matters like that, and I would give him a lift now and then when his poor little parlor magic soured on him. There wasn't a rag of his tower left, but I had the government rebuild it for him and advised him to take borders. But he was too high-toned for that. And as for being grateful, he never even said thank you. He was a rather hard lot. Take him how you might. "'but then you couldn't fairly expect a man to be sweet "'that had been set back so far. "'We'll return with Chapter 8, "'right after these sponsor messages. "'Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. "'Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? "'Well, why didn't you say so? "'Just download the Priceline app right now "'and save up to 60% on hotels. "'So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert "'in Kansas City, go Kevin! "'Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. "'You never have to miss a trip ever again. "'So download the Priceline app today.' Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. And now chapter 8, The Boss. To be vested with enormous authority is a fine thing, but to have the onlooking world consent to it is a finer. The Tower episode solidified my power and made it impregnable. If any were perchance disposed to be jealous and critical before that, they experienced a change of heart now. There was not anyone in the kingdom who would have considered a good judgment to meddle with my matters. I was fast getting adjusted to my situation and circumstances. For a time I used to wake up, mornings, and smile at my dream and listen for the Colt's factory whistle. But that sort of thing played itself out gradually, and at last I was fully able to realize that I was actually living in the 6th century, and in Arthur's court, not in a lunatic asylum. After that, I was just as much at home in that century as I could have been in any other, and as for preference, I wouldn't have traded it for the twentieth. Look at the opportunities here for a man of knowledge, brains, pluck, and enterprise to sail in and grow up with the country. The grandest field that ever was, and all my own. Not a competitor, not a man who wasn't a baby to me in acquirements and capacities. 
"'Whereas, what would I amount to in the twentieth century? "'I should be a foreman of a factory. "'That's about all. "'And I could drag a sane net down the street any day "'and catch a hundred men better than myself. "'What a jump I had made! "'I couldn't keep from thinking about it and contemplating it, "'just as one does who has struck oil. "'There was nothing back of me that could approach it, "'unless it might be Joseph's case, "'and Joseph only approached it, didn't equal it, quite.' For it stands to reason that as Joseph's splendid financial ingenuities advantaged nobody but the king, the general public must have regarded him with a good deal of disfavor, whereas I had done my entire public a kindness in sparing the son, and was popular by reason of it. I was no shadow of a king. I was the substance. The king himself was the shadow. My power was colossal, and it was not a mere name, as such things have generally been. It was the genuine article. I stood here at the very spring and source of the second great period of the world's history, and could see the trickling stream of that history gather and deepen and broaden, and roll its mighty ties down the far centuries, and I could note the upspringing of adventurers like myself in the shelter of its long array of thrones. De Montforts, Gavistons, Mortimers, Villierses, the war-making, campaign-directing wantons of France, and Charles II's scepter-wielding drabs but nowhere in the procession was my full-sized fellow visible. I was a unique, and glad to know that that fact could not be dislodged, or challenged, for thirteen centuries and a half, for sure. Yes, in power I was equal to the king. At the same time, there was another power that was a trifle stronger than both of us put together. That was the church. I do not wish to disguise that fact. I couldn't if I wanted to. But never mind about that now. It will show up in its proper place later on. It didn't cause me any trouble in the beginning, at least any of consequence. Well, it was a curious country and full of interest. And the people, they were the quaintest and simplest and trusting as race. Why, they were nothing but rabbits. It was pitiful for a person born in a wholesome free atmosphere to listen to their humble and hearty outpourings of loyalty toward their king and church and nobility as if they had any more occasion to love and honor king and church and noble than a slave has to love and honor the lash, or a dog has to love and honor the stranger that kicks him. Why, dear me, any kind of royalty, howsoever modified, any kind of aristocracy, howsoever pruned, is rightly an insult. But if you are born and brought up under that sort of arrangement, you probably never find it out for yourself, and don't believe it when somebody else tells you. It is enough to make a body ashamed of his race to think of the sort of froth that has always occupied its thrones without shadow of right or reason, and the seventh-rate people that have always figured as its aristocracies, a company of monarchs and nobles who, as a rule, would have achieved only poverty and obscurity if left, like their betters, to their own exertions. The most of King Arthur's British nation were slaves, pure and simple, and bore that name, and wore the iron collar on their necks, and the rest were slaves, in fact, but without the name. They imagined themselves men and free men, and called themselves so. The truth was, the nation as a body was in the world for one object, and one only, to grovel before king and church and noble, to slave for them, sweat blood for them, starve that they might be fed, work that they might play, drink misery to the dregs that they might be happy, go naked that they might wear silks and jewels, pay taxes that they might be spared from paying them, be familiar all their lives 
with the degrading language and postures of adulation, that they, the elite, might walk in pride and think themselves the gods of this world. And for all this, the thanks they got were cuffs and contempt, and so poor-spirited were they that they took even this sort of attention as an honor. Inherited ideas are a curious thing, and interesting to observe and examine. I had mine, the king and his people had theirs. In both cases they flowed in ruts worn deep by time and habit, and the man who should have proposed to divert them by reason and argument would have had a long contract on his hands. For instance, those people had inherited the idea that all men without title and a long pedigree, whether they had great natural gifts and acquirements or hadn't, were creatures of no more consideration than so many animals, bugs, insects, whereas I had inherited the idea that human daws, who can consent to masquerade in the peacock shams of inherited dignities and unearned titles, are of no good but to be laughed at. The way I was looked upon was odd, but it was natural. You know how the keeper and the public regard the elephant in the menagerie. Well, that's the idea. They are full of admiration of his vast bulk and, and his prodigious strength. They speak with pride of the fact that he can do a hundred marvels which are far and away beyond their own powers. And they speak with the same pride of the fact that in his wrath he is able to drive a thousand men before him. But does that make him one of them? No. The raggedest tramp in the pit would smile at the idea. He couldn't comprehend it. Couldn't take it in. Couldn't in any remote way conceive of it. Well, to the king, the nobles, and all the nation, down to the very slaves and tramps, I was just that kind of an elephant, and nothing more. I was admired, also feared, but it was as an animal is admired and feared. The animal is not reverenced, neither was I. I was not even respected. I had no pedigree, no inherited title. So in the king and noble's eyes, I was mere dirt. The people regarded me with wonder and awe, but there was no reverence mixed with it. Through the force of inherited ideas, they were not able to conceive of anything being entitled to that except pedigree and lordship. There you see the hand of that awful power, the Roman Catholic Church. In two or three little centuries it had converted a nation of men to a nation of worms. Before the day of the Church's supremacy in the world, men were men, and held their heads up, and had a man's pride and spirit and independence. And what of greatness and position a person got, he got mainly by achievement, not by birth. But then the church came to the front, with an axe to grind, and she was wise, subtle, and knew more than one way to skin a cat, or a nation. She invented divine right of kings, and propped it all around, brick by brick, with the Beatitudes, wrenching them from their good purpose to make them fortify an evil one. She preached, to the commoner, humility, obedience to superiors, the beauty of self-sacrifice. She preached, to the commoner, meekness under insult, preached, still to the commoner, always to the commoner, patience, meanness of spirit, non-resistance under oppression. And she introduced heritable ranks and aristocracies, and taught all the Christian populations of the earth to bow down to them and worship them. Even down to my birth century, that poison was still in the blood of Christendom, and the best of English commoners was still content to see his inferiors impudently continuing to hold a number of positions, such as lordships and the throne, to which the grotesque laws of his country did not allow him to aspire.
In fact, he was not merely contented with this strange condition of things, he was even able to persuade himself that he was proud of it. It seems to show that there isn't anything you can't stand if you are only born and bred to it. Of course, that taint, that reverence for rank and title, had been in our American blood, too. I know that. But when I left America, it had disappeared, at least to all intents and purposes. The remnant of it was restricted to the dudes and dudesses. When a disease has worked its way down to that level, it may fairly be said to be out of the system. But I returned to my anomalous position in King Arthur's kingdom. Here I was, a giant among pygmies, a man among children, a master intelligence among intellectual moles, by all rational measurement, the one and only actually great man in that whole British world. And yet there and then, just as in the remote England of my birth time, the sheep-witted earl who could claim long descent from a king's leman, acquired at second hand from the slums of London, was a better man than I was. Such a personage was fawned upon in Arthur's realm, and reverently looked up to by everybody, even though his dispositions were as mean as his intelligence, and his morals as base as his lineage. There were times when he could sit down in the king's presence, but I couldn't. I could have got a title easily enough, and that would have raised me a large step in everybody's eyes, even in the king's, the giver of it. But I didn't ask for it, and I declined it when it was offered. I couldn't have enjoyed such a thing with my notions, and it wouldn't have been fair anyway, because as far back as I could go, our tribe had always been short of the bar sinister. I could never have felt really and satisfactorily fine and proud and set up over any title except one that should come from the nation itself, the only legitimate source, and such an one I hoped to win. And in the course of years of honest and honorable endeavor, I did win it, and did wear it with a high and clean pride. This title fell casually from the lips of a blacksmith, one day, in a village, was caught up as a happy thought, and tossed from mouth to mouth with a laugh and an affirmative vote. In ten days it had swept the kingdom, and was become as familiar as the king's name. I was never known by any other designation afterward, whether in the nation's talk or in grave debate upon matters of state at the church at the council board of the sovereign. This title, translated into modern speech, would be The Boss, elected by the nation. That suited me, and it was a pretty high title. There were very few thes, and I was one of them. If you spoke of the duke, or the earl, or the bishop, how could anybody tell which one you meant? But if you spoke of the king, or the queen, or the boss, it was different. Well, I liked the king, and as king I respected him, respected the office, at least I respected it as much as I was capable of respecting any unearned supremacy. But as men, I looked down upon him and his nobles, privately, and he and they liked me, and respected my office. But as an animal, without birth or sham title, they looked down upon me, and were not particularly private about it either. I didn't charge for my opinion about them, and they didn't charge for their opinion about me. The account was square. The books balanced. Everybody was satisfied. What a great piece of writing by Mark Twain. Very, very interesting and enjoyable. I hope you're enjoying it as well. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time with chapters 9 and 10 from Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Meanwhile, this is John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories for the Road. If you're enjoying our stories, 
please do take a moment and send us a review, especially you Apple listeners. September is our sweeps month, and your reviews and your sharing with others really, really does count for us in this month of September. So if you've never sent a review and thought about it, yes, it takes about 10 minutes, Apple listeners, and you might have to Google how to do it, but it's a great way of saying thanks for all we do here. Between now and next Sunday night, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. 